Hello, and welcome to the Food Safety Dish, a production brought to you by the Local Food Safety Collaborative. I'm your host, Catherine Kavanaugh. The Local Food Safety Collaborative is a cooperative initiative established between the National Farmers Union Foundation and the FDA with the goal of providing training, education, and technical assistance to local food producers to ensure good food safety practices and compliance with the Food Safety Modernization Act. National Farmers Union is a grassroots farmer-driven organization that believes strong family agriculture is the basis for thriving communities. NFU's membership includes over 200,000 family farmers and ranchers across America. Farmers Union's grassroots structure promotes locally initiated policy priorities and educational topics established by their members. Learn more about National Farmers Union at www.nfu.org. Today, we'll be talking compost, the science of it, different methodologies, and how to get the most out of your compost. I'm joined today by Nathan Stacy and Liv Johansson, as well as my colleague Haley Wood. Nathan Stacy is the Director of Farm Programs at Tilt Alliance, and as a member of the Farm Program team, Nate helps develop and implement programs that support farmers, the farming community, and all others involved in organic, sustainable, and regenerative food production. The farm team aims to help local, regional, and statewide producers find solutions to their problems, and is also a collaborator of the Local Food Safety Collaborative. Nate earned a PhD in soil science from Washington State University and conducted field research that evaluated various recycled organic materials as soil amendments. He frequently creates and participates in educational programming for farmers, gardeners, and professionals, and is particularly interested in understanding and improving urban soil health. Liv Johansson is a passionate composter and conservationist. Prior to becoming the compost facility operator for the Woodland Park Zoo, she worked in green business, solid waste management, and education in coastal California. In addition to working as a composter and sustainability educator at the zoo, she also serves as vice president of the Washington Organics Recycling Council, otherwise known as WORK. WORK is one of the leading voices for organics management and utilization in the state of Washington. She chairs the work committee that hosts the annual compost facility operator training course, a five-day in-person course dedicated to teaching compost science, composting systems, regulatory compliance, and an understanding of compost's beneficial end uses. Nate and Liv, welcome to the Food Safety Dish. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Excited to have you all here. And also welcome Haley. Thanks for being my co-host this time. Of course. I'm excited to talk about organic matter. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, let's start with the science of soil. What is it? How does it form? How does it work? And what does it need to stabilize and or optimize itself? So there are probably, that's probably like 300 years of research going into like one question. So I'll try to keep this. <laughs> the as, abridged as, version. As this, yeah, the, the abridged version. You could spend a long time, and I am notorious for spending a long time talking about <laughs> soil. So I'll try to keep it as succinct as possible. So I think the the way I think about it, and maybe a a good way to think about how we can talk about soil is first start with the, the like book definition. So it's defined as the thin layer of unconsolidated material that covers unaltered bedrock, but that's a pretty bland definition and really doesn't describe anything. So I, for me, when I think about it, if you're thinking about it uh, practically or realistically, if you were to go out in your back 
backyard, no matter where you are, and just dig down and keep digging and build yourself stairs as you're digging and go all the way down until you hit really hard bedrock and then look up and around you, that's soil. And so that's a, a way to think about it, I think, globally, right? It's this depth of material that covers the earth. And it doesn't cover the earth in like a similar depth. It can be up to two meters, like six feet or if you're familiar with different island areas, the soil can be as shallow as like two inches or an inch. So it's globally, it's just this cover, right? This material that covers the earth. Then if you were to go and say you, you dug that hole and you dig down and you take a, a handful of soil and you just look at it, the simplest way to think about it is describing it as what's actually there. So one, it's minerals, right? Some rocks and silicate oxides or whatever it might be, magnesium, calcium. It's living and dead organisms and their space. And in that space can that space can be filled with air and or water. And and it can be filled with gases too. I'm saying air, but it can be carbon dioxide, it can be oxygen, it can be methane, it can be nitrous oxide. But that's the simplest way to think about it. So you got a solid thing, dead and living organisms, and then some space. So how does that form is also probably another like two hour discussion, <laughs> but really, really briefly, when a bunch of like nerdy soil scientists are sitting around talking about this, they describe the soil formation uh, processes through five factors. And so I'll go over these and, and then come back and give a really quick example because I don't want to hog this <laughs> entire discussion. But really, we talk about climate organism, relief, parent material, and time. And so if you take those simple factors that I described, the, the mineral, the dead and living organisms, and the space, and then you put them in a climate, you're going to get a different soil, right? So we're being interviewed in Washington state right now. If you go uh, on the west side of the state, there's a lot of precipitation. And if you go across the mountains to the east side of the state, it's a much drier. So in those different climates, you have different soils. Makes sense, right? Climate has a big mm -hmm. impact on lots of living things. The second, organisms, they play a role in how soil is created. So if you think about bacteria and fungi, worms, and maybe the lack of worms or moles, all those organisms have some impact on that soil. Then thirdly, we talk about relief. If I were to go into a river valley, that soil is going to be different than the soil that's on the side of a mountain. So where it's positioned in the landscape has an impact on the soil formation. Parent material, this is the fourth factor. Another good example from Washington State, we have a lot of volcanoes here. So mm -hmm. this soil is going to have unique characteristics based on the fact that there is a lot of volcanic parent material here, as opposed to soils that are on the East Coast. And then time. So if you take all of those factors, and then you add geologic time, not like the 80 or 90 years that hopefully I'll be here, or maybe I'm the one that gets to go to 110, who knows? <laughs> the interaction between climate organisms, relief, parent material, over time creates a certain type of soil. And it's really oversimplified, but that kind of gives you the real simple basics. How it works is, again, a very, very large question. But I think if you, one way to think about simplifying it is that if you think about, to my first comment, the soil covering the globe, right? The earth, 
what does the soil receive? Well, there's water that goes into it. There's sunlight that, that hits it, which then is energy and then heat. And so as those different components, so the minerals, the biological organisms, the exchange of gas, heat, energy, all of that interacts in many different ways, right? There's physical changes in the soil, there's chemical changes, there's biological changes. And that is a function of that soil. So it's really like a medium, right? It's a medium for all these interactions to occur in a space. And if you go even a little bit deeper, we often talk about the function of soil in several different ways. So the kind of more popular way to describe it is how does that soil provide us with ecosystem services? And we use different um, results to describe that. So for example, a soil can allow water to go through it, right? And so it provides filtration and storage to the soil. So you've got water storage and transmission. We get food from soil, right? Food, fiber, fuel, all that biomass comes out of the soil. That's a function. As a result of those functions, we get those things. There's nutrient transformation. If you've been paying attention to anything in soil in general, soil organic matter has been a hot topic along with carbon. So there's carbon storage. There's habitat for organisms. As I said, that's where the worms and the bacteria and the fungi live. And on the simplest one I always kind of laugh at is it's, it's, it's a habitat for us too, right? We build our buildings on that uh, bedrock or that pairing material, and it provides us with a home. And so to answer the final question and <laughs> stop talking, <laughs> to stabilize and optimize itself, it, it just is a reaction, of, you know, a bunch of uh, chemical and biological reactions, but there are certain components that kind of allow it to thrive. One of those is soil organic matter, but it also has to have those spaces I talked about. And when we think about soil, we also kind of come at it through an, an anthropomorphized view, like what do we want to get from the soil? Soils can be different, like a desert soil is, can be like a healthy and, it, and it's optimized in that scenario, but we probably are not going to go over there and try to grow a bunch of corn, but it's still a good soil. So the perspective on how the soil functions and then how it's optimized is kind of, you know, from our perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, just thinking about different soils across the globe is one way to think about the variability in, in all that material coming together over time. And then you have some kind of specific soil in that particular area. So that, that's all I got. That was <laughs> talking. fascinating. No, I mean, you could go on for probably a whole day or, you know, yeah. geologic time is a long time. So, yes. you know, maybe we should give it some more time. <laughs> I like the way you framed it as a medium. I've never heard soil mm. explained in that way, but as a space where like exchange happens, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and I think too, when you get into trying to manage soil, what we talk a lot about is maintaining that space and there, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the organisms and the plants, they all have to breathe. And that space is important for exchange, gas exchange and water filtration and all that. So it's, it's constantly like adding, amending something to the soil, but trying to maintain a space in there so that those other entities can thrive. And then those reactions are kind of based on that ability to exchange oxygen. 
Yeah, and Nate, I really like that you brought up the example of how a desert soil can be healthy without being the most arable land, because I think sometimes people think that soil health is synonymous with fertility, which is like the nutrient content, or synonymous with productivity, which is like, you know, crop yield. But healthy soils uh, are very situational, and they're very attuned to the different ecological factors and inputs and the flora and the fauna. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that is just important context that not all soil is beneficial just because it yields crop. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It is intrinsically valuable in the way that it's situated to its place in the globe and the other things that are dependent on it. Certainly. It's not all about us. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. What you said about the medium also makes me think about, you know, we're talking about the science of soil, but that also, when I hear medium, I think of art. So that also makes me think about the art of soil as well, as Earth so beautifully orchestrates it over millions of years. And there are some very interesting like approaches towards thinking about art and soil too. I think if you search I heart soil, I think think that they do some like artistic interpretations of soil and then oh. different colors of soil because of the variation in the chemical compounds you can get these really beautiful i mean if you've ever been to like arizona or anywhere you can just see the different colors and people will do different things with art too so there's a component artistic side of it as well <laughs> i don't have that but some people do <laughs> that's why we all work together <laughs> yeah <laughs> Nate and Liv, can you explain to us what is compost exactly, how is it made, and how does the science of compost work in relation to the soil? Mm -hmm. So, again, a huge conversation, Mm -hmm. but I think really simply put, uh, to use kind of a, a definitional explanation of what compost is, it is the product produced from the controlled aerobic decomposition of uh, organic feedstocks or organic Mm -hmm. materials. And so I think that's helpful because uh, it calls out a few things that are important when you're making compost. So controlled. So when we're thinking about it, we might think about, you know, the the tumblers or the worm bins. We might think about the big commercial piles, but it's something that's intentional. So it's not just leaf debris that's left to decompose Mm -hmm. in a forest, for example, even though that is incredibly important for the nutrients in that soil system, it's not compost per se. It's aerobic, meaning that it's exposed to oxygen. So you get all your aerobes out competing your anaerobes and out competing your other pathogens. So aerobic uh, decomposition is probably the most, I'd say one of the most important elements that goes into making compost. And then it's decomposition. So you're going to be taking whole inputs in through biological processes. It breaks down into its component parts. So it's organic matter, it's micronutrients, it's macronutrients. And, and all that put together is compost in the way that our industry uses it. And kind of when we converse with agricultural producers, that's kind of what we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Is that it's a controlled and intentional product. And so how it's made compost, you know, I'm very humbled by this work because I'm always reminded of how totally insignificant I am in (laughs) geologic time. (laughs) But you're important in our time. (laughs) Exactly. But the earth just, it, it knows what to do. 
<laughs> and and creating the environment where those materials can break down is really our job. So it's not making per se compost, it's just facilitating compost. Hmm. And so hmm. that's how I think about it. I'm a compost facilitator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and huh. yeah, yeah. And, and so you can make it in so many different ways, but ultimately it's about getting enough carbon-based material, enough nitrogen-based material, a little bit of moisture to act as as that film for all your microbes to move around, and enough oxygen that your aerobes can take over and do their job. So I would say as long as you're kind of checking all those boxes, you can make compost in the way that fits you and your operation. Cool. I love the facilitating compost. That's a great way to think about it. Hmm. And it's a very similar the decomposition process right occurs in the soil and so to to live's like great comment you're just optimizing that process and trying to control it and improve upon it and make it more efficient but you're really it's doing the microorganisms really doing the decomposition there but you're just optimizing all that environment so that they <laughs> they can do their work yeah and i guess to finish the question the science of how it works kind of gets right back to nate's a uh, point about soil. So, you know, soils need pore space, they need organic matter, they need to have enough water holding capacity. So the science of compost is, it it's just kind of plugging into the needs of the soil to bring what might be lacking back mm-hmm. to that environments. So whether that environment is, you know, a roadway, like a median on a highway or a farm, you're kind of reintroducing the things that actually the soil really needs. So that's kind of how I think about it is it is meeting the unmet needs of soil at that time. Hmm. Nate, you might have a different way of thinking about it, but um, that's as far as my, you know, not PhD in science (laughs) brain goes when I think Mm -hmm. about it. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's, It's a perfect answer. I, I don't know why they gave me that PhD though. I, kind of, <laughs> I, don't know if you, I think it's some. I know most of you, and I think you would also question why they gave it to me. I paid somebody probably, but that's a perfect answer. I, you are. It's a. It's a great answer. We're just we're like like I said, we're just optimizing this environment so that the microorganisms can do the decomposition, and then we have nutrients, and we have this great product, and it smells great. Depending on your perspective. Yeah, it's interesting to consider like the decomposition and the compost, like sharing the same root words of, yeah, I guess the compound or the, yeah, just kind of it decomposes it to make it, I guess, recomposition, just a composition. Yeah. yeah. Composition. It's interesting now that you said that, Catherine, because like it's decomposing the organic matter, but the microorganisms are composing their bodies and then they eventually Mm -hmm. die and then that gets used. And so if you really start thinking about compost, it's just this loop, you know, it just keeps on going and going Mm. in the right conditions and the right temperatures. And that's kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah. (laughs) Words. So a lot of people, you know, farmers specifically, uh, always refer to compost as black gold. Would you say it's held to that esteem universally? Or, you know, what what's the origin of black gold and do you kind of see it as that? Nate, you're welcome to take this one since you speak to more farmers. I think that's a good, that's a really good question. I think there's two ways to think about it. It depends on the use, right? The One of the reasons I think it's defined as black gold is because there's so many 
different uses for compost. So in, and there's a lot of details that I'm going to skip over, but basically the end product, depending on its nutrient availability could be used as like a fertilizer, right? It's not an immediate mineral fertilizer. Like if you went and bought ammonium sulfate or something like mm -hmm. that, or urea, but it can provide nutrients over a longer period of time. Okay. So that's kind of one use case, I guess. Another way that it gets utilized is a, like, depending on who you ask, you can say it enriches the soil or it improves the soil or it's a soil conditioner, right? If, if you, like I said earlier, if you've been paying attention to anything in, <laughs> which not many people are going to be paying attention to soil science journals, but soil organic matter is a big hot topic in part because, you know, 55, 56% of organic matter is carbon. So we talk about carbon and carbon storage and climate change and the carbon cycle. And so you're putting organic matter or carbon into the soil, right? We've been farming for X number of years and we've been depleting the soil of carbon, so we need to put it back. So that's a, one reason. You can also use compost to like suppress weeds, right? Over the top of the surface. Uh, there are farmers who do that. You get benefits like increased infiltration from utilizing compost in your soil. So I think the black gold part is the it reflects the multi-uses of compost and the multiple benefits you get from it. And to Liv's point, it's like we we don't have to invest much in this, right? We just have to organize the stuff in a pile mm. and <laughs> and let it go. And so mm -hmm. you, we're not investing a lot of energy. The energy is already there. So that's how I think about it. It's like, I mean, I'm not doing that much. It's already, it knows how to do it. There's all these enzymes and biological functions and respiration that goes on that creates this compost. But, you know, we're just, like Liz said, we're just optimizing that environment. And then we get all these benefits from this one thing. So that to me is like why it's black sure. gold. And then I think, Kaylee, to your, to answer the like kind of second part, I don't think it gets used as much as it should hmm. in general. The folks who do use wow. compost are, and Liv, you can probably speak to this too, are believers. And, and, they are. It's all. I would say almost like its own ideology or whatever it might Hop be. On board. Yeah, fanatics. Those people are set. In my opinion, and I'm heavily biased in this. It doesn't get used as much as it could. But mm -hmm. like I said, those that do, they're on board. Sure. Yeah, I agree, Nate. I don't think it is used as much as it should be used. I think there are some applications that are more intuitive, like homegrown agriculture or organic. I think it's more associated with organic mm -hmm. production, but it is so multi-use. And I think that it should be the standard, not just the exception. Mm. Yep. Totally agree. And can you, either of you maybe talk about some of the common methods and maybe how you choose the right method for your operation and scale, just kind of thinking about what you're working with. Sure. Like the application method or the production of the compost? Uh, the production mostly, but you could talk about location too, whichever. Liv, I'll let, I'll let you take care of that one. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. I think this is, this is a big one. If people really want all the info, I'll point them in the direction of the new compost handbook. It is like 1,200 pages that expands on all the things we're going to talk about. But I would say the three 
really crucial considerations when you're thinking about sort of the methodology and matching that to the operation and the scale is, is going to be what feedstocks do you have available? So are you bringing in manures or do you have them on site? Are you going to be using um, leaf debris or yard waste? Are you going to be taking food waste from other places or do you just have food waste available? So sort of what your feedstocks are and how you're going to get them to the place that you want to process them. That's, that's a huge consideration because compost is what you feed it. So, so ultimately the blend of your feedstocks is going to be the biggest determinant of your, your, um, product at the end. I would say how much space you have available. So if you don't have a lot of space available to make, say, a big windrow, you might have to opt for something that is more containerized or um, that has a little bit more infrastructure, like an aerated static pile, which is when you pile compost really high, but then you are aerating it intentionally. So you are reducing your surface area that is exposed to oxygen, but you're forcing air in a different way. So again, to keep that aerobic condition present. Uh, so space, your, the footprint of your operations is a big one. And then ultimately thinking about what you want to do with it at the end. Are you going to try and sell it? Are you going to try and donate it? Are you going to try and use it on your own operation? Are you a you know just a farmer trying to keep that circle closed? So those, those are the those yeah. are the big ones. But within that, there's so much room to play uh, with, with you know, all the other inputs. <laughs> so there isn't a one size fits all. It is really about finding what works for you. I'm glad you mentioned the new compost handbook from Rodale, because that is truly like a Bible. I remember early when I was beginning and learning about compost, that was the book that guided me yeah. for and, everything. And the most recent edition is incredible. So Strongly recommend that one. Nice. Liv, can you tell us about the story of the Zudu program and how does it work? And maybe also touch on who currently utilizes this program. Yeah, happily. The Zudu program is an on-site composting operation at the Woodland Park Zoo. It was started in the early 80s by an absolutely visionary man named Jeff Gage, who's gone on to do spectacular things in the composting industry since. And it was really a program that was, it was very small. The, the horticultural team on site kind of wanted access to compost and there was all this manure and organic material coming out of the zoo. So mm -hmm. if you think about the zoo, you know, it is, it's a big fancy exotic farm. So you're feeding hmm. everyone, you're bedding everyone, and everyone is pooping. So mm -hmm. it's like it's <laughs> such take care yeah. of the waste. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, if you're if you're gonna feed them, you're gonna have to clean up after them. Mm -hmm. And so at the time it wasn't a popular thing to do at zoos. In fact, it still is not a popular thing to do at zoos. Mm -hmm. But I think it is wow. so incredible that, mm -hmm. you know, over 40 years ago, this program was started. And in the last 40 years, it's evolved a lot. So it started as windrow composting. So kind of like long piles with PVC pipes in them to try and get some extra air in. It was turned really manually with pitchforks. Mm. So since then, we've had a few upgrades. Now we have a dump truck and a little skid steer tractor. And most Aww. importantly, we have, uh, since 2019, an aerated static pile system. So we have 
eight aerated bunkers. And those eight aerated bunkers, um, they use positive aeration. So air is forced in from trenches underneath all the material. And that helps us make compost a lot faster with a more predictable quality to it. So with that even aeration with, um, you know, we, we also have a mixer truck to sort of mix all our feedstocks up. It, it helps make a really reliable and predictable product. And to touch on the feedstocks right now, we take bedding from all of our animals. So that's going to be things like straw, hay, wood chips, wood wool. And we take manures from all of our non-primate herbivores at this moment in time. And the state of Washington has given a generous permit exemption to zoos to do this on-site composting. So there's, uh, you know, it's incredible to not have cool. to necessarily worry about that. But we're also a small operation anyways. We do about a thousand tons a year of finished product. So mm-hmm. we're not huge, but we do it all on a quarter acre. Oh so we're gosh. really, really wow. dense. Yeah, we're really, really dense. And that's what I'm saying. When you talk about the footprint, Mm -hmm. you are going to maybe need to go vertically instead of stretching out horizontally. Mm. So thinking about how to configure it for your site's a big one. And to get to who currently utilizes the program, it's a little bit of everyone. So if you've ever been to Seattle or lived in Seattle, you know that it is lush and green. Mm -hmm. And if you're plugged in with the Seattle gardening community, you know that it is voracious. So (laughs) it's an incredible gardening and local agriculture community. I'm sure Nate can attest to this being with Tilth. Seattleites are phenomenal. And Zudu used to be such a coveted compost product that it was given out by lottery only. Not a lottery anymore. We we have Whoa. not enough to go around to everyone, but we have mm. enough that we don't need a lottery. And yeah, and so we sell it awesome. we sell it in bulk to local farmers, local gardeners. Uh, our horticultural team uses it on site for everything. And then we have donation partnerships because we want to make sure that people who are growing for good, so growing for our food banks, growing for our pollinators, have access to the resources they need. Very cool. Yeah, I was going to say, Liv, this may not be, it sounds like it's not the case anymore, but they, there were like lines to come and get the zoo do, right? Like back in the day, people would line up and, and just, like, it was yeah. a sought, not that it's not still sought after, but it was, it was still very sought hot after. Hot commodity. It is a very hot commodity. <laughs> it is a hot commodity. It yeah. is. And the, the hotline is uh, 206 65 poop. And yes. it, I mean, it is, it blows up. It, oh. Don't stop calling. Yeah. Yes, this is the kind of energy that I want to see <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. So much enthusiasm <laughs> or enthusiasm. Oh, <Ooh>, nice. <laughs> yeah, I had a friend that um, I remember. I don't know how much of the zoo do she got when I, I was living in Seattle. And she had a a pretty nice backyard space. So she got some, I think, hippo poo. And I remember she was saying that once she got that, her garden really took off. So mm-hmm. I can attest to her testimonial. That- <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it's it's good stuff. And I'd say too, we because we sell it in bulk, we're not drying it, we're not desiccating it, we're not bagging it. You know, mm. people kind of lament that it's wet and it's heavy and it's cumbersome, but then they get home and it, it really has all the micro it's got the microbiome but it's also got like 
Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a word, but like the macrobiome, Mm -hmm. like you're taking home worms Mm -hmm. and you're taking home spiders and you're taking home all the invertebrates that live in it too. If it's not a word, it should be. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) How long does that process take for the zoo manure? Yeah, the zoo do. Uh So like I said, we mix it all together and... We're going to let it do primary composting so it gets really, really hot and neutralizes the pathogenic bacteria. Mm -hmm. So that happens for about three weeks. We put it through secondary composting uh, where we see the temperature sort of of fall a little bit for another 21 days. Both of those are aerated. So we just want to make sure that, you know, we don't have any odors. We're not contending with any odors in a highly urbanized environment. Um, and then after that, we sort of let it cure for about two to three months. So by the time people get it, it's closer to the five month mark. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And adding manure to compost can kind of change the process or like the risk of, you know, doing compost. Cause I think a lot of people who listen to this may just be using like food waste um, and maybe things that they find around their operation or their property. Yeah. What are some things you think about when adding manure to compost or yeah. Talk about how that changes mm-hmm. the process. Absolutely. So I would say manure is a great thing to get into compost because, you know, it's got a lot of nitrogen. It's got a lot of micronutrients it's kind of inoculated with a whole microbiome coming out of the animal. And, you know, it's, it definitely does change the risk profile. You know, the FDA has what they call BASAUs, Biological Mm -hmm. Soil Amendments of Animal Origin. So that includes like whole carcass composting, but that also includes manures and that includes things like, you know, a bone meal, feather meal, chicken, bones, all that. And so I would say it's part of that bigger umbrella of the animal origin. So you are exposed potentially to more pathogens. You're exposed intuitively to more pathogens. But if you are following safe composting practices, making sure that it's hitting compliance temperatures to reduce pathogens, uh, that's you know 55 centigrade for more than 72 consecutive hours, you are creating a compost that is safe for use, even though you started with something that might like be intuitively kind of nasty. Yeah, and that's that's a great point. Liv. Way back in the beginning of our discussion, managing the environment, like if you're managing the environment to create this scenario where you have efficient composting and you're meeting those temperatures, you get, and this has been studied on and on and on and again, you get a massive pathogen reduction of, of anything that's coming out of whatever could be potential camp contamination. And I mean, they've been doing this for a long time. And so what I always think about too, manure is like, it's, it's also, so I think one of us said this, you know, like there's that waste, right? But if you flip the other side of that coin and think about it as a resource, it's awesome. I mean, instead of just, mm-hmm. you know, getting rid of it and chucking it out somewhere, we can, we can manage the composting process, reduce those pathogen loads by optimizing all these scenarios. And then we get this great resource, you know, just locally from the zoo. It's just, it's a cool thing. Yeah. And I've heard a fact recently that people who kind of do more closed circuit or organic or sustainable farming, may have less risk on their farm just because of the added use of compost because it's interacting with more pathogen reduction, which is a crazy fact to think about. I know there's still 
doing a lot of research, but yeah, we kind of heard that that's maybe one possibility they're looking at. It's just that compost edition. Does yeah, it's lot. pretty amazing. And Liv can probably speak to this even more like they're the temperatures inside the pile. It's, it's hot. It's an understatement. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, the Zudu piles, again, we don't add any outside heat source. We just let the microbes do what they need to do. And, you know, the byproducts of that, you, you get a little bit of carbon dioxide, but you also get a ton of heat. And so the pile temperatures reach, you know, 165 degrees Fahrenheit casually, which is what you'd cook chicken to, you know? So Hmm. if you think about, if you think about that, right, it's kind of cooking itself. Hmm. Is it true that it's as hot as the sun is like, like not to scale, but you know, in, I've heard that before. I don't know if that's true. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was was like, because they're like, you know, obviously the compost pile is like not as big as the sun, but I guess they were saying like, if you were to take the sun and make it as small as a compost pile or, you know, I guess vice versa, it generates as much heat as, yeah, yeah. yeah. The same. That is a great, that is a great question. I am going to look that fact up. I can, so I did, and this is, now we're getting off on a sidetrack here. So when I was working in research, we did some, uh, lots of compost testing and we, there was this um, feedstock biochar, if you're familiar with biochar, basically like burnt wood, but it's not because it's not really in oxygen, but let's just call it burnt wood. You can add that to the compost. And so we were doing this experiment and the temperatures went they were crazy spikes like you wouldn't believe so much so that we ran over a colleague of mine went over there and was concerned that we were going to light the pile on fire oh because God. the temperature r- rose so quickly and there's all these you know interesting questions around why it did it but to, to Liv's point i mean there is some there, there is some <laughs> there's some heat and maybe Catherine to your point i don't know if it's equivalent to the sun but it's mm-hmm. hot <laughs> it would be cool if it was more research is required <laughs> that's very interesting could you both talk about some common compost misconceptions either maybe regarding the additions of manure or just in general yeah i can i've got a couple just off the top of my head Liv, that's all right i i know like in in particular with farming that it can't supply nutrients and it does supply nutrients it's just at a different time scale so i mentioned this earlier like a mineral fertilizer you put out ammonium sulfate and you get a response in whatever it is you know a couple hours or days or weeks but the compost is really a more a slow release fertilizer and can provide nutrients to your cash crop it just requires a little bit more planning to you know, implement or amend the soil with that compost and then kind of time out based upon your soil temperatures and what crop you're growing when you're trying to get that nutrient release. But I, it, it can be used as a nutrient source. Oftentimes it will get supplemented with uh, like a lower reduction in nitrogen. So if you had somebody that goes out and puts out a mineral fertilizer and someone who puts out a compost, then they would maybe cut their mineral fertilizer a half or by a third or whatever it might be to kind of complement that compost. But it certainly can provide some nutrients and in fact does provide like other micronutrients like magnesium and calcium and other things. Yeah, I would say to add to that, um, the common misconception that is prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, 
maybe pound for pound when compared to a mineral fertilizer. Sure, there's there's the added cost of, of trucking, of using a blower truck, of using a spreader, however you're going to get it there. But the benefits to your soil, and I think Nate might be able to attest to this, like the long-term benefits to the resiliency of your crop, the disease mm. resiliency, the climate change resiliency, the increased yields. There are so many associated benefits from using mm-hmm. compost that uh, to me, the juice is worth the squeeze. Mm-hmm. And But I think if you're <laughs> just like day in, day out looking at the price, maybe it appears prohibitively expensive, but over time, I think once farmers get into it, they realize that it is worth every penny. Yeah. And that's the, the long that's game. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a great point, Liv, too, because I think when you, we all we talk about soil health, there's a flip side of that, which is like avoiding soil degradation, right? We're trying to promote health, but we're also just trying to avoid soil degradation. Mm-hmm. And so over time, you're really investing in your system when you're your your long term system when you utilize compost, as opposed to like, I just need this crop to grow. You're really thinking about managing that soil, avoiding uh, degradation, reducing erosion, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me, a a recent article I read in the magazine BioCycle um, was was talking, yeah, I love BioCycle, was (laughs) about using compost as a tool to fight wildfire risk, which was something Mm, I never never thought about, but because of its incredible water holding capacity. Oh, very interesting. um, yeah, that it it really can wow. it reduces the flammability of of wow. the earth. Um, and there was an example oh. of a farmer from Southern California who had used compost extensively on and around his farm and his orchard. And you know they had, they took aerial photos, and the fire kind of like led right up to the to the line of the where the boundary where the compost started. And then after that, it didn't really do much damage. Wow. So they were allowed to continue to you know to even bear fruit from the orchard when the rest looked pretty scorched and devastated. And so that's anecdotal. That is just one case of so many and wildfires in can be so indiscriminate, but I think that it's interesting just to think about that alone, that it's almost a little bit of insurance, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you're concerned with that. Like quite literally insulating the ground from, you know, risk and other things. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, the images were so shocking. Amazing. Wow. Could you talk about maybe some of the benefits of using composted manure or compost without manure? Um, I don't want to say, uh, I don't want to ask about raw manure because it's pretty hazardous to use it, but maybe we can talk yeah, about I think it we can, as well. Yeah, just, ex- you know, I think with the, like one of the poo. things about raw manure is that you're not going, there is a window of time before you can grow any crops in there, right? So if you apply raw manure, and I won't know off the top of my head, we can you could Google this. It, it may be 90 or like 180 days. Do not go out there and do this. I'm not saying that. <laughs> Disclaimer. I'm not saying that there's 90 days uh, for those listening. But it, it, there is a period of waiting to apply that raw manure. And it, there is a lot of moisture in the raw manure. And then those potentially those pathogens are there. So if you can take the manure and then utilize it in a composting system, it provides not only the carbon that you need anyway, but it also has a certain amount of nitrogen. And then you get this, the result is one, you're utilizing this waste as a resource and you're providing your system, so your composting system with a source of nitrogen. There's a volume reduction, right? Because composting 
off gases some CO2, some methane, all these things, and you reduce that volume. And so maybe it's easier to ship, maybe it's easier to move around. And so to me, the best use of the manure is to compost it. It, it. And there are other considerations like with composting, it's not all uh, like a Cinderella story where it's all wonderful. You have to be very careful with phosphorus and other compounds that come with the compost applications. And that's something that you have to manage. But in that scenario, it, it just seems intelligent to utilize the manure as a resource in that system. And, and Liv, you all do that. So you have probably have even better input on that than I do. Yeah, we, um, you know, we have so many guests and we have so many people who are interacting with our soils that we are never going to put raw manure on anything because we we're never going to take that risk, even though we don't grow things for consumption. We don't grow products for consumption, but we are, you know, huge advocates for composted manures and we're huge advocates for using compost without manure too. So where we don't, you know, sometimes we don't produce enough compost on site to meet all the needs of our horticultural team on site. And so we, we do source third-party compost and, you know, it's not the highest priority that that compost be manure based or have manure in it. I think the benefits of compost are maybe elevated by the presence of having manure in it, but compost is just like a hard yes. So whether it's a <laughs> yeah. green waste-based compost, yeah. a food waste-based compost, um, whether it's it's sort of like a, a, a leaf wood mulch, you know, as long as you're getting that top dressing on there that's coming with the micronutrients, with the organic matter, uh, with the porosity and, and its water holding capacity, you're on the right track. So I would say if the question is using a manure-based compost or using no compost, I would say it's not worth setting it up like that. It's, it's just a benefit to use compost. I guess speaking of the ways compost can show up, what are some different methods to apply compost and maybe the pros and cons, you know, tilling versus top dressing versus side dressing? Maybe you can talk about objectively the benefits or maybe some things you guys like to do. Nate, personally. feel free to take this one while uh, we need to about farms. Sure. I, I think it depends on the system, right? And it, I think what's interesting with compost is that you can do all of those, like you could put it on the surface as an amendment, right there. So for example, I talked about suppressing weeds. There is a farm and I won't remember the name of it off the top of my head, somewhere in California. And these folks, they must dump, like five, six, eight inches, maybe 10 inches of compost on the surface and they're a no-till farm. And then they just seed right through that. And now they've had to adapt their equipment to do so. And it's taken them a long time to develop that. But I think similarly to what I said, like compost has all these different benefits. It's also, you know, you can use it in several different ways. You can just put it out and till it in if you want to. And I think that's, part of how the farmer is managing their land and how they're thinking about growing their crops. But you can just put it on the ground, right? And just seed right into it. You could use it in orchards, uh, you know, like underneath the orchards, there are some folks that will spread compost through those alleys and underneath there to suppress weeds or to supply, or supply some slow release nutrients. So it, the flexibility, the, what I really enjoy about compost is that you can utilize it in whatever manner you can, what equipment you have, 
and dependent upon the system you're you're working in. So I think there's that flexibility. And to Liv's point, though, like there there is always like an economic balance of trying to figure out how to apply that material. You got to use different equipment. There's there's always going to be that investment, but in the long run, I think it, there's so many benefits and so many advantages that I don't know. I, and I, again, I'm totally. <laughs> heavily biased, so. Mm-hmm. That's why we're talking to you, though. Yeah. <laughs> Nate, so you kind of touched a little bit on this, but can you dive a little deeper into some of the best practices for getting the most of compost? And also live too. Feel free to. No, I think Liv should do that. <laughs> She's All operating. Right. I'm just standing on the side reading the papers. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, I would say uh, figure out what you want to do with it. Mm. So are you using compost to grow food? Are you using compost to you know, bulk up your raised beds or short sort of figuring out what you need to do with it is going to help you get the most out of compost. Um, if you're using it for something like, you know, I know this, the, the podcast is for, for agriculture and for, uh, the food safety collaborative, but you know, stormwater management might Mm -hmm. still be a consideration on site on any farm. So for each application, there is a best practice. So I know that that doesn't necessarily get to the to a single catch-all um, answer for the question, but I would say it is very specific to the application. Hmm. And are there any resources that you could just list off the top of your head that people could go search if they want kind of more specific answers to these questions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've touched on the composting handbook. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say the, you know, the city of Seattle has a lot of best management practices published when it comes to using compost. And those are more directed for people who are land users and land developers. You know, you have in, in Seattle, you're obligated to remediate the land after you've done construction on it. But still, those resources speak in depth to sort of the best ways to use compost, whether you're doing a sock, a berm, a blanket. Um, and so you can go to soilsforsalmon. I believe it's soilsforsalmon.org, yeah, or you can go right. to compostwashington.org, which will take you to the WORC, W-O-R-C, Washington Organics Recycling Council website, and there's a lot of resources there. Awesome. And if you go to... The Washington State University Puyallup Research and Extension Center website, and then I believe it's in the soils website or link. There's a bunch of information on composting there, too. And in fact, I think they have a calculator on there to help you optimize your feedstocks for different uses and what you might find, I think. If it's... Yeah, that is such a good point, Nate. Thank you for yeah. bringing that up. Yeah, I think it's still there. You should probably check that <laughs> There you go. Um, I want to ask about food waste because that is a huge resource that we have. Um, you know, obviously humans make a lot of waste. Animals make a lot of waste. We have a lot of waste lying around. How do you all think we can better distribute and minimize food waste in hopes of preventing methane, maybe through composting methods or other methods? It's a big question, but... I think if we just get it out of the waste stream like they're doing in Seattle, I mean, it's, and Liv, you probably have paid Mm. more attention to this nationally, but I remember a colleague of mine, they went to the U.S. Composting Council conference and, and 
don't quote me on this, but I think that Seattle and Chicago and then a couple of other handful of municipalities and cities are the very few, like pulling the uh, food waste out of the waste stream. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really the exception as opposed to the norm. And so part of the next step is to continue to accelerate that program or or not even that program, but to help others maybe implement programs like that across Mm -hmm. the country. And that's like the simple, I know that's a very, it's like, Oh, all you have to do is get everyone to do this thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, five of us can figure this out right now. But like like this, this this simple (laughs) answer is to to look to other places that are successfully doing it and then try to implement that. And then I think that like Mm -hmm. there are folks that in that, who are in that environment who are looking at reducing methane and, you know, optimizing their system to reduce methane, to capture more nutrients, to utilize biochar in a way to capture nutrients or reduce CO2 loss or whatever it might be. But it, it's like just promoting the moving that food waste out of there. And, and to your, so we talked about this earlier. It's, it's also like rethinking waste as a resource. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that stuff is, can go back into the ground on a, like your banana peel can then become a peach <laughs> like oh, in Eastern beautiful. Washington or something. Yeah. That's going to be my like, tagline. But so yes. I, I just thinking about it like that is in telling the story of compost is mm. really important to, it's, it's really, I mean, it's nerdy because we all enjoy it, but it is amazing that you can take this thing, it breaks down, and then it becomes a nutrient, then it becomes another thing. Hmm. I hear you. So it's like reframing. It's like we, maybe we should start thinking about it less as like a, a, a an excess that we need yeah. to get rid of and more yeah. as a resource we need Restarting to Restarting the that cycle. That's a really good way for yeah. optics. Yeah, 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 exactly. I completely agree with that. It's just a resource in the wrong place. Hmm. And the when it comes to thinking about the cycle of food waste, there are a thousand different entry points. You know, you could be working with policy developers to change the incentives for, you know, mm-hmm. production on farms. You could be working with supermarkets to change the way that they source things and market things and then um, really creating robust networks for connecting food to hungry people that's mm-hmm. huge right like mm-hmm. you know the, the food waste hierarchy says you got to feed the hungry people and right. then you got to and then you got to you know feed the the hungry animals so things like mm. so there are a lot of ways to reuse food specifically food waste um before you even have to compost mm-hmm. it but i think we can all agree that the worst thing for food you know the the end product of so much human and technological and biological energy is to just throw it away. Like that is such mm-hmm. a shame. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. To Nate's point, just yeah. just no, getting a, it out of the landfill in the first place. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a good way to think about it too. Like think about all the energy and money that goes yeah. into producing that food just to then chuck it away. Yeah, yeah. When you do life cycle. Yeah. analyses yeah. and cycle assessments of just even individual pieces of produce it's just like your jaw hits the ground mm-hmm. it's so incredible yeah yeah it's interesting to consider the landfill pipeline almost of just the very oh. linear way that a lot of things move and live earlier you talked about closing the loop and how compost does that you know we're talking about food waste but it also makes me think about you know some of the concentrated feedlots how they have those big manure lagoons and that just seems like something that doesn't happen in nature as well i guess and this is also like a kind of a big picture question but 
how do you guys think we could move forward and like how can compost be a more viable solution in the eyes of more people to really close that loop you know preventing pathogens from emerging you know preventing methane preventing having those things just kind of like seep out into the atmosphere containing that and like putting it back into the ground how do you think the path is forward here what an excellent and huge question. But it's it's such an important thing uh, for us to be comfortable talking about and sort of developing a social conscience about. Mm-hmm. Because I think in certain states, like I'm thinking, you know, California, Washington, Vermont, to an extent, Oregon, um, New York, like the, these states are really incentivizing the use of organics in compost or anaerobic digestion. And there's some teeth in the legislation. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a great way to start. Uh, I think as well, just making compost more visible hmm. and more available to people. I think so many people, you know, we've got so many people have homes with yards and gardens. So many people could be using it. And those markets um, could have the potential to grow and kind of drive that cyclical demand. So many composters struggle with having a lot of product and they're not sure Mm. how to actually get it into the hands of consumers. Mm. So so that I think warrants some real consideration of Mm. of how you make compost sexy, of how you make Mm -hmm. it the standard, the norm. Mm-hmm. Totally. We need like a mascot or like a very yeah. good yeah. campaign. Yeah. <laughs> Bucky, Bucky badger. Like a little fairy, a compost fairy, just sprinkling compost all over the land. I don't know if a fairy is the right mascot, but could be one. It could be a have like a whole. <laughs> now I'm thinking about like a whole animated series of like compost, like <laughs> little <laughs> little cartoons that are just like the compost squad. But I don't know who would pick that up. Maybe Seattle. Honestly, Maybe we would. would. We would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be the first ones. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? I was thinking too, Liv, you mentioned this earlier about policy. And, you know, there's a component to that, which, uh, and I am not a policy wonk by any stretch of the imagination, but if the, you know, if you're able to lobby or the legislature moves on some policy and assists or subsidize or matches farms and farmers to utilize compost it's it's such a huge deal and i think and i will get this wrong but it's they did something very similar to this i think this past year maybe it was two years ago in washington state with the conservation commission sustainable farms and fields i think Liv, you probably can speak to that i think yeah it's it, it helps farmers to and it may be a cost share maybe a just a straight subsidy to purchase equipment. So if a group of farmers wanted to purchase equipment to make compost applications. And I think that particular program is really tied to, to climate smart uh, management strategies, but compost is certainly one of those. And I, to Liv's point, I think that, you know, you tell the story on the one side, but then you also back it up with some money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of people that, you know, the, the knowledge definitely exists. There's a lot of fanatics seems like there's a lot of compost. It sounds like kind of the missing middle is how that is connected with people that can utilize it. And do they know how to use it in all of these myriad of ways that, you know, we've been talking about a little bit here today. Kind of on the 
um, I guess you're not going to really like this question, but on the opposite <laughs> side, imagine, imagine it's probably not a world you want to be in, but what would a world without compost look like? And to kind of have a second part of that question, what do you think the risk is of not composting, you know, at all? Is that even possible? Do we still get anaerobic digestion in this world? This horrible world? <laughs> you know, like, the air is still there, you know? So it's just like, I, I think that, let's just say like compost can happen naturally, but the humans just don't care. Like, <laughs> what is that world? <laughs> piles of stuff. No one touches piles, piles of stuff. Piles it's piles just, of just stuff. a really big landfill. Everything is just a yeah. landfill. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. Pi- I, I don't even know what that would look like. Because, uh, I mean, it, yeah, that's a great question. Apocalyptic? <laughs> hmm. yeah i can't even begin to think about it. again because compost is natural like i don't think there could be a world where things aren't breaking down you know um but i think the the second part of that question is really interesting the risk of not composting you know is it's tremendous not just because methane is such a powerful greenhouse gas that just forces the the climate change cycle uh but i think Mm -hmm. the 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 risk globally of not developing an awareness for all the resources that are out there and thinking in uh big the big picture about actually using what we've actually forced the ground to reap Mm. That, those are consequences that are so profound. I think we, you know, even, even with the conversation of recycling, I know we're not talking about recycling here, mm-hmm. but there are municipalities that still don't offer recycling for yep. paper, aluminum, plastics, all those things. Mm-hmm. So that's considered yep. a waste product in so many places. And so I just think having more awareness of, of what goes into making all the things that we enjoy in our modern lives is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like perfectly said. Yeah. I think it's like, to, to your point, Liv, I think it's about conservation, right? Mm-hmm. It's that there mm-hmm. is a limit to, to under or to acknowledging maybe and having an awareness that there is a limit to biological systems and mm-hmm. resources and the larger conversation you could argue that we're having is about conservation, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Composting is about conservation in many ways. Mm-hmm. Where do y'all think is a good place to start for new composters? I'm specifically thinking about maybe small scale, but it could also be people that want to jump into compost operations, right? Like maybe someone has a good idea for their city. Where where are the good places to start for the composters of the world? Nate, do you want to start or would you like no, to no, take a No, 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 no. You're the professional. You, you okay. go for that one. <laughs> um, he's so generous. <laughs> I, I, the answers are so much better and so much more eloquent than I am. So. <laughs> she get an honorary PhD, Liv. <laughs> yeah, you can have mine. <laughs> oh, this is a great question too. I would say if you are trying to start at home, then there are a litany of options, whether those are tumblers, worm bins, just just piling things up and seeing what happens, right? You can be a little more experimental, but if you're thinking small scale on your farm, then I think some of the things that might be important is if you are looking to sell your product, it would be taking a training course. 
because if you are selling a product, you know, there's a little bit more liability and a little bit more, I think you should be a little bit more aware of the context of that work. And so I'd say taking a training course through work, through USCC, just one of those, one of those operator training courses would be great. I would also say that it's worth looking into incentives that exist in your community. So whether that's connecting with an extension agent or just doing some research on what financial resources or technical resources exist on starting on-farm composting, those might be really uh, insightful because they're going to be more, more situational, I guess, since there are so many different ways that a farm can do business. Uh, so I don't think I could speak to all of those with one answer. Uh, but I would say just figure out what you want to do with it. That what Once you figure out what you want to do with it, do you want to sell it? Do you want to donate it? Do you just need to use it again on your farm? That that'll drive the thinking, but in reverse. Working backwards. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Reverse engineer yeah. the system mm-hmm. yep. that you want. What do I want to do with this? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Any ideas from you, Nate? Oh, sure. (laughs) I'm not going to promote the organization that I work for, but now I am. The organization like Tilt Alliance has a composting master composter class. So depending on where you are in the country, yeah, it's a Tilt Alliance, www. I don't even know what the the website is and I work there. But there are, that's all to say (laughs) that there are municipalities or city or nonprofits or other training programs like Liv said that if you if you're not on the scale of a municipality or a city, you can go and get trained on composting and, you know, they're pretty accessible and pretty affordable. In fact, you can probably just buy one of those like tabletop bins that you could compost to yourself and, and read some articles on the internet. But I know that there are lots of it. And in particular, because we live in the Northwest and we definitely have a more environmental skew to everything here there's a lots of opportunity for that but in in other cities and other municipalities there are similar nonprofit organizations or or universities that offer composting classes or even uh extension through the university we will often have publications that you can read and, and how to get started but that's my answer <laughs> great wonderful do you all have any fun facts about compost you'd like to share? The one that I came up with, I think it's fun. It's about compost for salmon conservation. So Nate, Hmm. I don't know if if you're familiar with this one, Uh -uh. but some, some recent research has indicated that we can preserve Uh, specifically coho salmon populations in Washington Hmm. through applying compost to the sides of roadways because... So the runoff doesn't all go into the sea? Yeah. The, you know, when you drive, there's natural erosion on the rubber in your tires. Mm -hmm. And there's a component, a chemical component of tire rubber called 6-PPD quinone that's been shown to be really detrimental Mm -hmm. to the reproductive abilities of salmon. And so uh, some incredibly brilliant researchers isolated that one compound and figured out that a compost sock or um, a compost blanket that's basically just a mixture of sand and compost can filter almost all of that and neutralize all of that chemical out of roadway runoff and can, you know, preserve water quality in in salmon 
breeding habitats. And I just think that is so exceptional. I think mm-hmm. that is just something that in Washington we care so much about. We mm-hmm. love our salmon. We want them to thrive. It's so important for, you know, whether we're talking about local economies or even indigenous heritage, mm-hmm. we we need to do what we can to preserve the salmon runs. And so just thinking about compost that way is awesome. And that to me is a really yeah. fun fact. That's so fascinating. It makes me think about, you know, I've thought about like pollinator, you know, corridors and stuff, you know, planting, but it makes sense so much to think about, you know, the water, it's all going back to the source, the sea, and then what is it bringing with it? And if it doesn't have all of these particulates that it's carrying, and if it can be filtered more, that's amazing. I think definitely we can be thinking more how our land systems influence sea systems and rivers and all that stuff. It's really awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure how to follow that. That's like the best example. <laughs> I don't even follow that. But I, there's a, I, I guess it gets to, which I think is an amazing part of compost is like the versatility of it, right? It, it, it can mm-hmm. be used for so many different things. So you just, we live just talked about biofiltration and bioremediation, and there's all these other things that we didn't even go into that it, it can be used for. And it smells great. It smells great. Compost has that unique earthy smell. And mm-hmm. I don't know, those of us who are into compost probably love that smell. Other, other <laughs> folks might not, but. All <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that yeah, geosmin. Exactly. Yeah, I think my fun fact is the versatility. It can be used for so many different things. It's pretty, yes. pretty cool stuff. Yes. I think what I've really taken away from this conversation is that it is such a viable solution to just like add that health and vitality back to soil systems. But also, you know, it can probably be like one of our top five climate change combatants, I imagine, just by using it and all the effects that it would have by using it in that multitude of ways that we've been talking about. Compost will save us. <laughs> Period. <laughs> It's like not a question. I mean, I yeah, it's, I guess it's an opinion, but one of our saving graces. I'm going to also use that. I'm going to use so many things from this discussion. <laughs> we can make a bunch of stickers. Yes, uh, that's awesome. Well, any other final sentiments to leave our listeners with? Any advice, wisdom, tips, tricks? I would say take a class. Take a composting class. Even if it's just a simple one, backyard one, just to try it. If, if you're interested in it, they, they have them around. It, it's, you know, the, it's like-minded people and you get to dig around in the compost and learn some things and you're outside. And why not? Yeah, the compost community is good company. So even if yeah. you don't end up becoming a backyard composter, to know if you won't kill you. So I totally, <laughs> I totally echo Nate on that. Just, just get involved and see who you meet and see what's out there. Yep. Oh, wonderful. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for being on our podcast. I've had so much fun. I feel like this has been a really illuminating conversation and I'm just really glad that you were able to take the time out of your busy schedules and talk about compost. I'm sure we could keep talking for many hours, but this has been really awesome. Yeah, I've learned some beautiful things about the soil and compost that feel uh, very metaphorical for human life. And yeah, just thanks for sharing all your information and all your knowledge and expertise. We're really lucky to have you on. Thank you so much for having me.
Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate your time and getting to chat. If you are interested in learning more about NFU and the work that we do, check out our website at www.nfu.org. And thank you to our sponsor. This podcast is supported by the Food and Drug Administration of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as a part of a financial assistance award. 2U01FD006921-03, totaling $1 million with 100% funding by FDA HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of nor an endorsement by FDA HHS or the U.S. government. I'm Catherine Kavanaugh, and this has been The Food Safety Dish. Until next time.